Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. The last time I recall seeing her, I had went and visited her. I was a busy little teenager, so of course I had a million things to do and people to see. And so I said, okay, mom, see you later. And she looked at me and she goes, five more minutes, Carly, stay five more minutes. And I said, I'll stay five extra minutes next time. And there was no next time. Just outside the town of Rochester, Washington, an hour south of Seattle, there's a gravel pit that's commonly used for illegally dumping trash and stolen cars. But on a cold, wet January morning in 2007, a passing motorist spots something else off the highway near the entrance to the gravel pit. It's the body of a woman. She's naked and her head is propped up on top of an abandoned car seat. She's quickly identified as Karen Bodine, a 37-year-old mother of three from Olympia, Washington. Karen has been strangled to death, and 15 years later, her callous and brutal killer is still unknown. I'm Steve French, and this is Unsolved Mysteries, Killing Karen. I was a patrol deputy, and while I was on patrol, one of my field training officers took me to the location where Karen's body was found and said, you know, we have an unsolved homicide. It wasn't until 2013, when Detective Mickey Hamilton started working for the Thurston County Sheriff's Office, that he first heard about the death of Karen Bodine. Six years later, in January 2019, Detective Hamilton found himself in charge of her murder investigation, which has become one of the most confounding cold case homicides in Washington state. I was passionate about this case because as a cop, nobody wants to have an unsolved case, especially an unsolved homicide. It's a long and complex case with lots of different people who've been interviewed over the years, different persons of interest who've come up. So this case was very difficult from the very beginning it falls on Detective Hamilton to comb through over 9,000 pages of case files in an effort to unravel the clues in this tragic mystery. He begins with a victimology and one simple question. Who was Karen Bodine? My mom, I mean, everyone is unique, but she was definitely one of a kind. She was tall and blonde. She had the most beautiful green eyes ever. She was the epitome of beauty. 
Carly Bodine is Karen's firstborn daughter. She was 18 and a senior in high school when her mother was killed. It was her inside and her outside that just made her so vibrant and amazing. And she was multifaceted. She was a tomboy one day and a fashionista the next. She was a social butterfly. She was friends with everyone. And everyone loved to hang around her. That was just my mom, like making everyone feel comfortable in their shoes and hanging out. Karen was born in 1969 and grew up in the Olympia area of Washington State. At the age of 19, Karen gave birth to Carly and later had two more children, a daughter, Taylor, and a son, Tanner. My mom and us children lived in the family home with my grandparents. My mom was so young and everything. I mean, she was capable of taking care of us, but my grandma was also. So we lived with our grandparents mostly. And I think that was good for my mom because it gave her help with the children. And then we got to hang out with our grandparents. So it was a pretty close family home. And then every once in a while, she'd get her own apartment, but she'd always usually end up back at grandma's. She held a few different jobs throughout her life. She's been a restaurant server. She worked at Safeway. And one of my favorite jobs she had was she was our lunch lady when we were in school, when I was in elementary school, probably about fifth grade. Being a single mom was a challenge for Karen, and it was compounded by a longtime struggle with drug addiction. She moved in part-time with a boyfriend, but in January 2007, their relationship had grown toxic. She had gotten in a fight with him, and instead of bothering my grandparents and being all embarrassed and telling them she got in a fight, she and the boyfriend had a mutual friend just a few blocks down the street. She just figured, oh, I'll just walk down the street, cool off for a day or two, and, and go back. Three days later, around 7 a.m. on the morning of January 22, 2007, police recover Karen's nude body discarded outside the gravel pit in Rochester. 22 miles from where she had been living with her boyfriend. She was posed specifically resting on this car seat, and then her arms and legs were arranged in a specific way, too. It wasn't haphazard the way that she was just dropped. I don't know when she was dumped sometime before daylight, more than likely, but right at daylight, a motorist going to work saw the body pulled over and called 911 and said there's a body on the side of Little Rock Road. It's a common place where people will dump garbage or animal carcasses during hunting season because it's kind of a remote location in the fact that there's no businesses in that area. There's no residences in that area. Little Rock Road is a major north-south thoroughfare for that part of the county, so there is a lot of traffic on Little Rock Road, especially peak hours of people going to work and people coming home from work. The autopsy report reveals that Karen was strangled to death but there's no evidence of sexual assault. There was a ligature found on her body, which was involved in that strangulation. So the only other real evidence we got from the body was three different DNA samples from her body. We've been working on those DNA samples since 2007. One DNA sample we have is a mixture of up to four contributors. And so that's the one we've kind of been focusing on attempting to isolate profiles out of that mixture to determine some more information that would be useful. In addition to the DNA, the medical examiner finds one unusual piece of evidence on Karen's body, a tiny paint chip embedded in her hair. There's no way to know if this is a significant clue, but the paint chip is carefully preserved for future examination. 
Investigators comb the dump site for other evidence and conclude that the location where Karen's body was found is not where the murder actually occurred. Now, we don't believe that she was murdered there because we don't find any of her clothing there. There's not really a lot of disturbed dirt like there was a struggle. There was some tire tracks at the scene, so we took castings of those. Based on the other evidence and the patterns of the injuries that we see in the strangulation, we do believe there was a struggle. So it appears that where her body was located was just a dump site, not the original scene of her murder. Whoever dumped her where they dumped her intended her to be seen and found pretty quickly. So then you think about who are the other people that display bodies, typically drug cartels and that kind of thing. They're trying to send a message to somebody, but there's not any evidence in this case that she was involved in any drug cartel activity or anything like that. So the only other thing is that she was positioned that way because they wanted her to be found, because they did have some vestige of remorse maybe about what happened to her, but they removed her clothes because they didn't want evidence left behind. I don't know, it's very puzzling the way that she was left. News of their mother's death soon reaches Karen's young children. 15-year-old Taylor remembers being pulled from basketball practice. 12-year-old Tanner overheard the police telling his grandparents at their front door. 18-year-old Carly wasn't home at the time and is still haunted by the moment she heard her mother was dead. I was hanging out at a friend's house down the street and my Nana drove up. So right off, I knew something was wrong. It was Carly, we need to go home. And I looked her in the eye. I was like, just tell me, <laughs> just tell me. I mean, I could not even fathom the next words that were going to come out of her mouth. And she just kind of looked at me and there was silence for a minute. And I guess she didn't know any other way to say it. Carly, Carly, your mom died. I couldn't even process. And she wanted me to go home with her and I... I just walked away. I started walking around the little tiny town of Centralia, just trying to think about, like, this isn't real. This isn't real. Like, I've got to be dreaming. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. After processing the crime scene, investigators immediately begin to interview the last known people to have seen Karen, starting with her boyfriend. When they delivered the news to him, he was pretty distraught and upset and seemed to be appropriately shocked and saddened by that news. And he was very cooperative from the beginning. You know, he provided an alibi. He came in and submitted to a polygraph. He voluntarily provided DNA sample. He came in for multiple interviews over the next coming weeks and months. So he was very cooperative and 
wasn't really considered a suspect and doesn't really have a motive either. With their most obvious suspect cleared, police zero in on the time frame leading up to the murder. After the fight with her boyfriend, Karen went to stay with a mutual friend, a musician and bandmate of Karen's boyfriend. Their band often practiced at this man's house, and he and Karen had become friends, so he agreed to let her stay with him for a few days. He had a couple people living on his couch, so there was a lot of people coming and going at that residence throughout the weekend. And then eventually he has issues with Karen as well, so he tried to have her removed from the house several times that weekend, first by the police, but that didn't work because there was no legal reason to remove her. So then he started having associates take her out and drop her off in remote areas of the county, hoping that she would just get lost or go away. That didn't work either. She just kept coming back to the house. On Sunday morning, January 21st, the day before she's found dead, Karen once again finds herself walking the streets alone. She had not been home in quite some time. An officer from the Lacey Police Department was called to come and check on her on Sunday morning for a welfare check because somebody saw her walking and it was January and it was cold and she wasn't dressed appropriately for the weather. So the Lacey officer makes contact with her. She says, you know, I had a fight with my boyfriend, so I left the house and I'm just walking around to kind of cool off. The Lacey officer tried to give her a ride. She didn't want to ride. He said, let me at least call your mom and see if they can come and get you. So she agreed to that and he tried to call her family but didn't get through. Her mom was at work, so he lets her go about her way and she walks off and he goes back to patrol. On Sunday night, Karen is again back at her friend's house where several people are also hanging out. According to witnesses, Karen is still distraught about the argument with her boyfriend and tensions within the house boil over. She was trying to, you know, calm down from their fight they had had. There was only one bathroom, I believe. And when my mom's stressed out or anything, I guess it's what all of us Bodian women do. We take a bath. It's what we do. And so someone had to use the bathroom. And my mom was still taking a bath. And I guess there was an altercation. Some people say they were just yelling and screaming. Some people say they were beating on the door. Some people said there was a physical altercation. It just depends who you ask. And everyone tells different stories of when my mom was there, when she left, who she left with. You could tell they're all covering for each other or they're all covering for someone because everyone had different stories. Detective Hamilton reads through the interviews of everyone who was at the house at the time, including the mutual friend who owned the house and was allegedly involved in the altercation with Karen in the bathroom. He claimed that after the fight, she left his house. He heard her get into a loud vehicle he didn't see the vehicle, he just heard its exhaust, and then the vehicle left, so he assumed she left with that vehicle because he never saw her again. That's kind of his story, and I don't have any witnesses to really contradict that. All of them were using narcotics at the time of these events, so their memories are pretty fractured, and they've told me, you know, it's hard for me to remember that weekend. So putting together a coherent timeline of her movements and her last known locations and things has been difficult. Somewhere between midnight and 3 a.m., they remembered seeing her alive. And then either they left or they reported that she went outside and they never saw her again. And then her body was found between 7 and 8 a.m. The person that she was staying with in his initial reaction was suspicious because 
They also contacted him the same day her body was found and they told him that something had happened to Karen and he kind of laughed and said, what, did somebody finally strangle her? That was his reaction when nobody knew that her death was strangulation yet. The detectives had their suspicions, but there hadn't even been an autopsy yet. So that aroused suspicion with them. Then finding out that he had multiple problems with her throughout that previous weekend was also suspicious to them. His level of cooperation has been back and forth. At times, he's been cooperative. He did submit to a polygraph. He did not pass the polygraph. But again, there's no physical evidence that he killed her. The lack of physical evidence is an early hindrance to investigators, so they focus their attention on tracking down the loud vehicle Karen was seen getting into when she left the house. Police release a public call for information in the case and receive several tips about a suspicious brown car that was near the area of the dump site around the time of Karen's murder. In the initial statements, they reported seeing a brown Datsun with a burnt orange stripe and a brown camper. One of the persons of interest in this case, he drove a Ford F-150 that was brown in color. So a somewhat similar description to the Datsun that's brown in color described at the dump site. And that F-150 was unique because his name was written across the back window. And one of the witnesses who said they last saw her prior to her death said that they saw her getting into that truck. When investigators try to locate the truck, they learn it's already been scrapped, destroying any potential evidence it might contain. The reason that it was supposedly scrapped was electrical issues, which seems like a strange reason to total a vehicle. Didn't seem to be that old of a vehicle. And in my experience with the people that we were dealing with in this case, they had lots of junk vehicles sitting around their property. It seems like they tend to keep them for parts more than scrap them to a scrapyard. So that just seems kind of out of character for these individuals. It just seems awfully coincidental that the vehicle would be scrapped that close in time to the murder. Police try to track down the owner of the Ford F-150 and run into yet another unexpected hurdle. The owner of that vehicle was arrested on separate charges he was a drug dealer that was involved with the narcotics trafficking out of that house. Sometime around the time of the murder, he was not a citizen of this country, so he was deported based on those other charges. And based on the information that I've been working on, he was never interviewed in the case, I can tell you that, and has never come back to the country since then. He's about the one person in this case whose DNA we do not have. After exhausting all their leads, the initial investigation grinds to a standstill and remains that way for close to 12 years. Then, in 2019, an organization called CrowdSolve reaches out to Detective Hamilton and his police department. They're looking to help shine new light on long-standing unsolved crimes. CrowdSolve, it's a unique idea. The idea was that there are a lot of armchair detectives on the internet that like to spend time looking at these cases. And so CrowdSolve was looking for agencies that were willing to kind of open their case files up to a bunch of people who are basically amateur detectives. They're doctors and lawyers or anybody from any walk of life. They'd have a different perspective and a unique perspective from cops. So we let them pour over the case file for three days 
and see what ideas they come up with for investigative techniques that maybe we just haven't thought of as cops. So CrowdSolve asked me, do you have any unsolved cases that you are interested in profiling or letting us take a look at that we could help with? And Karen Bodine's case immediately came to mind. And so I brought that case to them. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Over several days, the crowd-solved detectives pour over the case details and focus on a number of areas worthy of deeper investigation, starting with the mysterious vehicle Karen allegedly left the house in that Sunday night. One amateur sleuth points out that the RCMP, or Royal Canadian Mounted Police, maintain a database of auto body paint, which could prove useful in analyzing the paint chip that was found lodged in Karen's hair. I didn't know until I went to crowd-solve auto body paint chemical formulas are proprietary so they can be broken down and identified and you can at least get a make and a time frame when those automobile manufacturers are using that paint. So in this case, Karen Bodine, we found a piece of auto body paint in her hair during the autopsy. I was able to send that sample to them and I'm still waiting for the results. I haven't got back my results yet to see if they could tell me but the weakness in this system is that if the auto body paint is a custom paint and it's not a factory paint, then they're probably not going to be able to tell me anything about it. But if it's a factory paint, it might give me some more information to look what kind of vehicle that came from. While that paint chip may ultimately lead to an important clue, the CrowdSolve investigation also focuses on reevaluating the DNA evidence recovered from Karen's body. One of the complex things about DNA evidence is it doesn't necessarily mean just because their DNA is on her that they killed her, right? She could have consensual contact with somebody, whether that's consensual sexual contact or whether that's just handshaking. The DNA scientist seems to think that the amount of DNA we found is too great for consensual contact. It's just a piece of evidence that we have to figure out how it fits into the puzzle. We do have DNA samples for almost everyone, so their DNA is in CODIS or they submitted to and provided consent samples for us for comparisons because they wanted to clear their name. But none of it is a match. One problem encountered during the initial investigation was that a key piece of DNA evidence contained more than three contributors, which at the time was impossible to separate and identify. Then I found out from the other experts that there's some companies doing some mixture DNA analysis we don't really have the technology to separate those contributors and isolate individual profiles. But there are a couple companies out there developing software. We did have a DNA sample that we had analyzed by the Washington State Patrol Crime Lab, and they determined that it was up to four contributors. And so it's too complex of a mixture for them to analyze and isolate individual profiles. But one of these other companies might have that ability. So I reached out to them and working on that angle as well. CrowdSolve also suggests another avenue of investigation into the cold case. 
In 2014, the musician and bandmate that Karen was staying with when she was killed went to jail on narcotics charges, and some of his accomplices were suddenly ready to come forward with information, knowing he was behind bars. So much time has passed, loyalties have shifted, people who may have been afraid to come forward and give information in 2007 or 2010, they may not be afraid to give that information now. So I've been slowly working through that list of people to re-interview them and try to come up with maybe new information that wasn't provided in the original investigation. I've used every tool that I can think of whether that's reaching out to the FBI or the Royal Canadian Mounted Police or anybody else to try to move this case forward any way that I can. It's going to take some kind of evidence or a statement that we can corroborate with the evidence that we already have to know what happened to Karen. Right now, I don't have a witness who says, I saw Karen Bodine murdered and this is who did it. I don't even have that. So I at least need that that will point us to a suspect. Carly and her family are grateful for the hard work and passion of Detective Hamilton and all the dedicated law enforcement officers who have tried to solve her mother's murder. But she and her family are disappointed in the way the media has handled the story. They feel that Karen's battle with drug addiction and her other personal struggles prior to her death have made the single mom a less sympathetic victim. The newspaper reported on it right off the bat. They didn't even say murder. They said suspicious death. They wouldn't even say murder for a long time. They pretty much tried to just push it under the rug and not even give it any media attention or anything besides the initial reports. And they victim shamed her and really did not do her justice. And it made the community not care either. Every victim is important. And I think any cop that you talk to would agree to that because we got into this profession because we wanted to help people. And are there maybe some stigmas around narcotics use? Sure. But I don't really consider any of the factors of how she lived her life. We work this homicide just as hard as we would work any other homicide. I don't think there will ever be closure. Of course, they lost a mother and a daughter. But the fact just remains that she deserves justice like anybody else deserves justice. For Carly, the fight to find her mother's killer has been a 15-year struggle but her dedication has never wavered. If anything, the introduction of Detective Hamilton and the CrowdSolve event has given her renewed energy. Carly has posted billboards and personally handed out flyers in town, asking anyone for information that could lead to a break in the case. I think about my mom constantly, whether it's getting dressed in the mornings because she was always so good at choosing out clothes and she loved pink and everything, so every time I wear something pink, I think of her. Whenever I see a carnation, I think of her because it's her favorite flower. And the worst part is, is it always starts with a good memory like that, like the flower or even seeing a payphone. I'll remember when she used to call me on payphones, but then the memories turn darker and I remember what she looked like in her casket. Or I remember that I'll never get to talk to her again. Or I remember that she got stolen from me, yet someone's not in prison for stealing her. So they always end up becoming sad, but my mom and I are fighters. <laughs> I've been a fighter since day one, so I, I will fight for my mom and, until I can't anymore because I guarantee she would do the same for me. In 
If you have any information about the unsolved murder of Karen Bodine, please submit a tip at unsolved.com. Next on Unsolved Mysteries. They burned my granddaddy's house to the ground. My mother lived there 65 years and no one ever bothered her. Whoever hurt Daniel, they came to that little town to hurt him with someone who knew him and knew him well. Unsolved Mysteries is a production of Cosgrove Muir Productions and Cadence 13, an Odyssey company. It is executive produced by Terry Dunn Muir and Chris Corcoran. Produced by Christine Lenig, Courtney Ennis, Bill Schultz, and Paul Yates. The story producer for this episode was Joanna Brooks, and it was edited by Ryan Dan. From Cadence 13, editing, mixing, and mastering by Chris Basil and Andy Jaskowitz. Production support by Sean Cherry, Ian Mont, and Ava Fenneberger. Artwork and design is by Kirk Courtney. Publicity by Maura Curran, Josephina Francis, and Hilary Schuff. The original theme music was composed by Gary Malkin and Michael Boyd. Thanks for listening to episode 50 of Unsolved Mysteries.